Dimas stood at the craggy apex of Hillluker with the posture and poise of a gentleman. He wore a wire collar with lace trim atop slashed doublet and sleeves. Despite the heat, he did not fan himself nor make any other such fuss, only stood tall beneath the wide brim of his hat, which he had pinned up on the right side rather than the left, so as to provide some protection from the sun hovering in that quadrant of the sky. This was his only gaffe in fashion or bearing, and Dimas was quite sure no one would take any notice of it. The gorge of the enormous mine to his back, he gazed out intently upon the narrow road and felt a surge of excitement like the crackling of gunpowder up his spine as two young pilgrims came into view round the bend engrossed in conversation with one another. He guessed them to be husband and wife, which pleased him all the more. As they drew nearer, the two of them seemed to notice the silhouette of the gentleman in the wide-brimmed hat at the same time, peering curiously and pointing up toward him. Ho, turn aside, Damas called. For what? The man called back. Are you hurt, sir? Are you stuck up there? Not at all. I am in good health, good spirits, and much wealth. And I am as free as any man can be. He raised his arms above his head and drew in a deep breath. Come up here and I will show you something wondrous, which will leave you both in the very same state as I. It's a bit of a climb, the woman said, and we are tired. Tell me, what will we see? A vast silver mine, Dimas answered, and a few people digging in it for treasure to great effect. Believe me, dear woman, for very little work, you and your husband may find yourselves quite rich when you resume the road. He could half hear them conferring below, not taking in every word, but getting the broad strokes, that these travelers were overdue for a rest at any rate, and that both were content to add some profits to their respite. They came up the steep rocky ascent with no little difficulty and came to stand precariously beside Dimas, who turned and gestured broadly at the mine with a grand flourish as if he were, in that moment, bringing it into existence. The two pilgrims gaped at the deep sunken pit, which gaped back all the more. Drifts and shafts could be seen here and there, blocked off by single ropes stretched across. Apart from that, all was still. Has much silver been found? the man asked. It looks abandoned. Oh, a veritable treasure. Even today, much has been recovered. You can see piles of the stuff gathered against the nearest wall here, just below our feet. See it for yourself, but uh, be careful. The two travelers glanced at each other, their eyes dancing with the promise of easy wealth, then leaned precariously over the edge, eyes searching. I don't see anything, the man said. He shuffled a bit closer to the ledge. Wait... Maybe. Oh, it's down there, Dimas said. Suddenly, the man flailed, flapping his arms frantically like a bird, dangling out over the deadly expanse for a panicked, breathless moment before recovering his balance and taking a long step back from the edge. That was a close one, he wheezed, wiping his brow. Ah, but you saw, did you not? The gleaming silver... No, I saw nothing beneath us that shimmers. I, th I think I'll just take your word for it, though. Dimas frowned. I see. Perhaps you're a bit too timid for this work. 
That's fine. Easy as it is, it's not for everyone. And, of course, the Celestial City awaits. Tell me, would you two like some tea before you head off on your way? My name is Dimas, by the way, and I am a fellow pilgrim at your service. Pleased to meet you. I'm Mr. Goalong, and this is my wife, Cupidity. Turning to her, the man said, And uh, now, my little Cupid, perhaps we should scale back down and have a proper... Uh, oh, dear. Please, don't, don't stand so close to the edge. I can see it, she said. I see the, the silver. Please, please, dear, come back. Just a... <laughs> A shriek and the sound of sliding rock, and she was gone. No! Go along shouted, reaching out after her. He flailed once again, arms grasping at nothing, his balance shifting out toward the chasm. Dimas grabbed the back of his coat and held him firmly, stretched out over the pit, gazing down at the mountain of corpses below. An involuntary wave of relief washed visibly over the man, swallowed immediately by renewed shock and sorrow. Oh, my little Cupid, what did you do? My heart breaks for you, Damas said. In fact, I wouldn't be able to live with myself if I didn't uh, reunite you two. He released his hold on the coat and watched Mr. Goalong fall to his death. Damas looked down at his latest victim and issued a dark, self-satisfied chuckle before turning his gaze back out toward the road, waiting patiently for more pilgrims to happen by. Hi and Silver and Gut Check Media presents The Pilgrim's Progress. From this world to that which is to come. John Bunyan's timeless Christian allegory, as told by Zachary Bartles. Chapter 16. Heathens, Hypocrites, Wizards, and Devils As Greatheart had instructed, Christian and Hopeful walked through the night, speaking all the while in thin whispers. As they traveled, Hopeful related the events which had led him up to the place of deliverance, Faithful being so kind and patient, so forgiving and yet unyielding, that Hopeful had been able to simply follow him, a step at a time, up to the cross of Christ, as it were. As they spoke of faithful, both men broke down more than once. They were overwhelmed with sorrow at each thought or mention of their departed friend. Knowing that the brave pilgrim was even now safe and happy in the celestial city, while they themselves made their way down this dark and dangerous road, enemies at their back and tribulation ahead of them, was some comfort to their souls, but not enough to quell their tears. Ashamed at the memory of his own ill-treatment of the dungeon servant turned servant of the great king, and convicted by the tales of Faithful's kindness, Christian halted his steps, gripped his new friend by the shoulders, tightly enough to raise an alarm in the man's eyes, and pleaded, Oh, Hopeful, please forgive me. I should have been doing exactly as my companion was, filling your ears with the good news of our king and showing gratitude for every meal and every service you provided. My words and my actions, to say nothing of my heart, were not worthy of the one I serve, the one we serve. There's nothing to forgive, Hopeful said with a smile, and uh, don't sell yourself short. My journey to that holy hill began on the day you two entered our town, as I watched you and Faithful both endure abuse with such courage and grace as I had never seen before. 
The both of you sowed seeds. Faithful watered them, and, and God caused them to burst forth from the soil. I am grateful to all of you, and I trust that you will help in pruning and watering all the more so that God might bear great fruit through my life. They resumed walking as the sun now broke forth above the horizon, beginning in earnest a new day for these blessed pilgrims. And it wasn't just me, you know, Hopeful said. Pardon? It wasn't just me who watched in awe as you and our brother bore witness with unmatched confidence, willing even to face death for your king, if need be. These past few days, there has been increasing talk among fairgoers about this king and his country and the narrow way. We may have left that place only two, but there will be many more people of vanity who will take their time and follow after us. I pray you are right, Christian said. I can think of no better tribute to Faithful's witness than for his blood to bring forth a harvest of souls. They stopped briefly for breakfast, some cold meat and cheeses and dried fruit which Hopeful had brought with him, and then resumed their progress, now swapping tales of their youth and the towns of their origin. Before long, they came to a surprising conclusion. While the average citizen of vanity or destruction would laugh at the idea that these two towns had more than the most superficial things in common, from a pilgrim's perspective, they were practically the same place. Each was set firmly in its own way on keeping its population from moving on along the narrow road. They were prisons without bars or guards, but prisons all the same. It was mid-morning when they came upon two well-dressed men making their way up the hill at a leisurely pace. Well, hello, Hopeful called cheerfully. How are you gentlemen this fine day? Oh, quite, quite well. well, the two said in unison, then looked at each other and burst out laughing. <laughs> I assume, said Hopeful, that like us, you two men are on pilgrimage to the celestial city? We are indeed, said the taller of the two. Both wore expensive wigs and boots crafted more to impress society types than for comfort in travel. We have come from the town of Fairspeech, the tall one said. The other man busied himself counting coins one at a time and replacing them in his purse. Fairspeech, Christian repeated. Does anything good live there? Touché, but remember, that's just what they said of our lord, is it not? That nothing good could come from his hometown? Careful with such generalities. I was thinking of the proverb found in scripture. Believe not the man of fair speech, for there are seven abominations in his heart. The man with the coins chuckled. <laughs> Only seven? What's your name? Christian asked. Well, at present, I am a stranger to you, the tall man said. But if we're going the same way, perhaps we could get to know each other along the road. That suits us. Hopeful said. I've actually heard some good things about your town, sir. They say it's a very wealthy place. So it is. I do all right myself, and I have many rich friends and kinfolk there. He nudged his fellow and said, including this gentleman, Mr. Moneylove. His companion sneered and grumbled, curse you, buy-ins, I've lost count now and must start over. He fished the coins back out of his purse. Who are some of these relations of yours, if you don't mind me asking? Christian said. Perhaps I've heard of them, if they're as prominent as you imply. 
Well, almost the whole town is related to me in some way. Uh, let's see, there's my Lord Turnabout, Lord Time Server, Lord Fair Speech, from whose ancestors the town first took its name, not to mention Reverend Two Tongues, the parson of the Pleasant Chapel, our, our local church. He's my uncle, a very well-respected man. Sounds like you come from very good stock, Hopeful said. Yes and no, the man replied. I have become a gentleman of some quality, yes, but my great-grandfather spent his life looking one way and rowing another. He was a, a waterman, Hopeful said. Indeed, and I got most of my estate by that same occupation. Nothing wrong with that, Christian said. Are you married? Oh, yes, indeed, and my wife is a very virtuous woman, and the daughter of a virtuous woman, one lady feigning, perhaps you've heard of her. I very much married up, as they say. My wife is the apex of breeding, and yet she can consort with prince and peasant alike. And you serve the king who rules these lands, and sets his throne in the celestial city. The words came out more like a challenge than Christian had intended. Well, yes, in our way. Our religion does differ from those of the stricter sort in just a couple of small points. Such as? Well, first, we never strive against wind and tide. That's the core of our creed. Never stride against wind or tide. It has a, a certain ring to it, doesn't it? Uh, secondly, our zeal grows in relation to the approval of men. I know it sounds odd to just come out and say it, but in fair speech, we believe in simply putting it out there. We are most devoted and fervent in our faith when the sun shines upon it. Most men live this way. We simply own it. When the multitudes applaud religion himself, when he goes out in his silver slippers, then we proudly walk in his train. Mr. Moneylove, seemingly satisfied with his sum, returned the purse to his belt and said, By ends, I wonder that we haven't yet caught up to the others. Might we have passed them unintentionally? By ends? Christian interjected. You're Mr. Byens of Fair Speech. I, I believe I've heard of you. The man rolled his eyes. That's not really my name. Rather, it's a silly nickname given to me by some who cannot abide me. He shot a look of reproof at Money Love. And I, being kind-hearted and patient, must content to bear it as a reproach, just as other good men before me have borne similar names. Your friends gave you this name, you say? Christian asked. Yes, I catch your meaning. I, I suppose I should think of it as simply some good-natured ribbing. Actually, I was thinking, who knows a man better than his friends? And I was wondering if you've ever considered why those who know you best have named you after selfish motives. Has your behavior invited such a name? Mr. Byans scoffed heavily, overselling it. Never! No, not ever. If anything, I've simply been lucky. Lucky enough to always jump in with the present way of things and, therefore, to make the most profitable move in a given moment. Quite by chance, I've found my fortune swelling of late, and, well, I choose to see it as a blessing, rather than focus on the jealousy of my so-called friends. With a crooked smile and a wink, he added in a stage whisper, especially those who spend their time counting and recounting the same thirty coins. <laughs> Hopeful frowned. It seems to me that your nickname may suit you more than you think. Mr. Byans chuckled. Well, I can't help how it seems to you, but I am still willing to go along with you until we find the rest of our party. He shielded his eyes against the sun and peered off into the distance. They went ahead to see if there was some 
finer food to be had along this stretch. You may certainly walk with us if you like, Christian said, but you will have to go against wind and tide to do it, which of course means going against your creed. And you must own religion when he is in rags or bound in irons as well as when he wears his silver slippers. And you must not abandon him when the crowd leaves off applauding and instead mocks and reviles him. Bayans belched out a haughty superior <laughs> laugh and said, Oh, I must? Do not presume to impose your views on me, sir. Who are you to lord it over my faith? Leave me to my liberty and let us simply walk together. Christian came to a sudden stop and grabbed Hopeful by the elbow, pulling him back as well. Not another step unless you agree to my conditions. We have no fellowship with the sort of fair-weather faith that you propound. Well then, said Bayens, we will part ways, for I am unwilling to desert my old principles, which are as harmless as they are profitable. He turned to his companion and said, Double time, money love. Let us catch up to our countrymen and have some civilized company. The two men hurried on, growing stiff and tired, for they were unused to exerting themselves. But within the space of an hour, they came upon Mr. Saval and Mr. Hold the World, both of whom greeted them triumphantly, waving fresh-baked bread and a few small wedges of parmesan. Gentlemen, Saval announced, the hunt was a success. Mr. Byens accepted some bread and cheese and began to nibble on them as they continued on. Well, look at this fellow. Saval said. We locate the finest food this road has ever seen, and he looks like we've force-fed him sour grapes. What's got you down, Byens? Well, it's just... May I ask you gentlemen something? They all grunted mm, their right. assent. How long have we known each other? Since boyhood, boyo, Mr. Hold the World answered. Schoolmates at the great Love Gain Academy in Coveting County, under that dreadful Master Gripeman... I can still sing the school song, if you like. Spare us, said Byans. I wouldn't call Gripeman dreadful, Mr. Moneylove put in. He did teach us the art of getting, in all its forms, either by violence, deception, flattering, lying, or even using the guise of piety. It was a comprehensive education, no doubt. Agreed, said Byans. I would drink to the health of Mr. Gripeman any day. I believe he taught us well enough that any one of us could open such a school, if we so desired. Yes, yes, said Saval, but why all this nostalgia? Are you homesick already, Byens? No, it's, it's these gentlemen we encountered along the way, far countrymen. They were so rigid and so in love with their own notions and, and clearly thought so little of the opinions of others that even an exceedingly godly man, if he does not jump with them on all things, finds himself thrust quite out of their company. He means himself, Moneylove said. And you as well, Moneylove shrugged. Honestly, I was hoping for an out. They seemed a bit dour and overly serious for my tastes. I've read about such men, said Saval, excessively religious and overly rigid, condemning all but themselves. Sadly, they are all too common on this road. I'd rather hoped we were past that as a, a civilized people, but they remain still. I assume these men made you feel like your religion was worth less than theirs, if not worthless altogether. They tried, at least. Tell me, said Saval. 
Where exactly did their religion differ from ours? Bayens thought. From what I gathered, they see it as the duty of all pilgrims to rush ahead through any weather in a, in a headstrong manner rather than waiting for wind and tide. For, of course, we never strive against wind or tide. Oh, yes, all the men clucked in agreement. But these two insist on hazarding all for God and gospel, while level-headed gentlemen like us take every advantage to secure life and estate, even while holding religion in high esteem. But what troubled me most is the way they would hold fast to their beliefs though everyone be against them, without a thought to the times or even to their own safety. Not to mention, said Mr. Moneylove, that they are for religion in rags and contempt. They said as much. <laughs> he laughed grandiloquently. So these men are fools, said Mr. Hold the World. They have the liberty to keep what they hold, but are stupid enough to lose it. We, on the other hand, are wise as serpents, just as the good book says. We make hay while the sun shines, just as the good book says. And for my part, I'll take my religion with the security of God's blessings. After all, he has seen fit to give us the good things of this life. He hoisted what remained of his cheese wedge. So he must want us to go on enjoying them for his sake. Mr. Saval nodded vigorously. Right you are, and this is the natural way of things. Have you noticed how the bee lies dormant in winter and only stirs when she can have profit and pleasure? As the good book says, hold the world interjected. I'm not sure all these are from the, the good book, but all the same, God has given us this great example in nature, as well as the examples of Abraham and Solomon, who grew rich through religion, and yes, Mr. Hold the World, those are from the good book, as is Job, who calls it good for men to store up gold as dust. Do you suppose these two pilgrims behind us have ever even read about these holy men? Bayans shook his head, sadly. I wish I'd thought of half of this when I was speaking to them. It irks me no end that we have both scripture and reason on our side, and yet these men still thought to criticize our religion simply for being tolerant of the times and for valuing liberty and safety. I'll tell you what I would ask those two narrow-minded dogmatists if they were here, Mr. Sabal said. I'd say this. Suppose a man, be he a tradesman or a minister of religion or whatever the case, it doesn't matter. Suppose he learns about a possible advantage to his situation, which he might achieve but only by appearing to be quite zealous in certain points of religion. Points in which he had never really meddled before. May he not use these means to attain this end and still be an honest man? Ooh, is that a trap? Bayans asked. Trap or not, Mr. Moneylove said, the answer is obvious. Let's suppose the man is a minister. And suppose he is a worthy man, but only has a very small parish, and has his eye on a much larger church with far greater honors and a plumper purse to boot. And suppose that by being more studious, preaching more frequently and fervently, and perhaps altering some of his own principles, he can attain this goal. I say he can and should do so, and here are my reasons. First, his desire is lawful. This cannot be contradicted since the opportunity was set before him by God's own providence. His conscience is therefore clear concerning his new appointment. 
Secondly, if his desire to climb the lattice makes him more studious, more zealous in his preaching, and all the rest, it therefore makes him a better man. This must be in keeping with the mind of God, who desires all of us to become better men. Oh, yeah. Oh, here, here. Oh, yeah, it does, yeah. But, some might say, is it not a sin to abandon one's principles for gain? On the contrary, was it not the great prince of the heavenly land who told us to deny ourselves? And is that not what such a minister would be doing? And what can go wrong with adopting a sweet and winning demeanor? I would argue that all this makes him more, not less, fit for his ordained position. Oh, you are on a streak, my friend, said Bayens. Now do the tradesman. Moneylove thought for just a moment and said, Okay, yeah, suppose this tradesman is just barely scraping by, and he determines that by becoming quite religious, he might mend his market and gain far better customers in his shop. This could, in turn, lead to a rich wife and a life of relative ease. I find no problem whatsoever in such a course of action, and I'll tell you why. He rolled up his sleeves while the others shouted, Tell us! <laughs> Here we go! First off, to become religious is a virtue. It does not matter why he becomes virtuous, the end is the same. He's virtuous. Secondly, it is not unlawful to gain more customers or marry a rich wife. And thirdly, it's all good. Here's what I mean by that. He gains what is good by means that are good by becoming good himself. What is not good in that equation? A good wife, good customers, good profits, all by becoming religious, which is itself good. Can anyone object to all this goodness and still consider himself good? I think not. The men of fair speech clapped money love on the back and praised his intellect and rhetoric. Then Bayens folded his arms and glowered. Where was all that verbal dexterity when we were walking alongside those men? Moneylove shrugged. I didn't know you felt so strongly about them. Saval nudged Mr. Byans and whispered, But look, they're coming up behind us now. Is this not them? Let's have a return match and show these men that the religion of fair speech is not to be slandered. Ho oh, there! Mr. Hold the World called back toward the two pilgrims. May we walk and talk with you? As they approached, Christian's eyes passed from money love to buy-ins to the two newcomers. Talk about what, he asked, walking past them. The men of fair speech picked up the pace and drew up alongside. I am Mr. Hold the World, and this is Mr. Saveall, and I believe you've met our two friends. We have, Christian said, but we found that while we may be in the same place at the same time, we are not truly walking the same road, so we decided to part ways. So they said, and that is what I would like to understand. Could I pose to you a question, which we were just now discussing as we walked along the path? I think your answer could be eye-opening for, for all of us. Let's hear it, Christian said. Hold the world took a deep breath and carefully crafted the question. Suppose a minister or a tradesman learns about a possible promotion to a higher station which he might achieve by appearing to be far more zealous in certain areas of religion, which he had, up to that point, neglected. May he use these means to attain this end and still be an honest and upright man. He raised his eyebrows and grinned at the pilgrims. Christian glanced at Hopeful and rolled his eyes. Wait, 
That's it? Even a babe in religion could answer 10,000 such questions. I would hear your answer to just this one, Hold the World said. If you will hear it, then listen carefully. In his earthly ministry, the Lord Jesus rebuked the crowds who followed him for loaves and fish. Is it not far viler to make of him and of true religion a Trojan horse to acquire and enjoy the things of this world? It is the height of wickedness, and only heathens, hypocrites, wizards, and devils would dare deny it. I think you've tipped your hand and given me the trick, said Hold the World, to try and refute me by saying that only rogues and devils and such share my opinion without giving specifics is as good as admitting defeat. Oh, yes, indeed. Oh, oh, you'd like specifics. All right, let's begin with a specific heathen. Are you familiar with Shechem, who wanted to gain the daughters and cattle of Jacob and so offered to adopt the mark of Israel's covenant? I'm sure you remember the story from the writings of Moses. It did not go well for him or his subjects. Bayens half raised his hand. I don't know that I've read the passage in question. Well, Christian said, after taking Jacob's daughter by force, the wicked Prince Shechem tried to erase his vile crime by proposing marriage to her, even offering to circumcise himself and to command all of his men to do the same in order to appease her brothers. The sons of Jacob accepted this offer. Then, on the third day, when they were all at their sorest, every man grimaced and took a few smaller steps, On that day, all of Jacob's sons rushed into the city and killed every last man to avenge the honor of their sister. This is the fruit of the heathen who would try to use religion for gain. He furrowed his brow in thought as he walked. Let's see, what's next? Heathens, uh, hypocrites, Hopeful supplied. And I can fill that one in. The hypocritical Pharisees were also of the same sort of religion. They postured with long prayers and showy piety, but with the goal of of devouring widows' houses to their own gain. And this brought all the greater damnation from God. Our Lord Jesus himself declared seven woes against them for such things. Absolutely, Christian said. Then there are the devils, of course. Judas himself was filled with the devil, He followed Jesus so he could hold the money bag and skim for himself what he would. But ultimately, he was lost forever, the son of perdition. But at least he gained those 30 pieces of silver. He glanced at money love. But uh, you said wizards, Saval said. Surely you misspoke, huh? Not a bit. Simon, the wizard, was of the same religion which you celebrate in fair speech. St. Luke recounts this sorcerer's tale in his Chronicles of the Holy Apostles. This man tried to buy the gifts of the Holy Ghost, as if the third person of the Blessed Trinity might turn him a prophet like a, a trained monkey in the street. But Peter, the rock, rebuked him, saying, May your money perish with you. And know this, any man who will take up religion for the world will throw it away just as quickly for the world. That is what Judas did. He followed the Lord for gain and sold his master for the same. And so for anyone to answer your question in the affirmative is heathenish, hypocritical, superstitious, and devilish. And his reward will be according to his works. The four men of fair speech stared at Christian, slack-jawed, none offering a response. 
After an awkward moment, Christian wished them good day, and he and Hopeful continued on their way, Bayens and company falling back a hundred yards or so. Christian turned to Hopeful and said, If these so-called pilgrims cannot stand before the sentence of men, what will they do with the sentence of God? And if they fall silent when dealing with vessels of clay like you and me, what will they do when rebuked by the flames of devouring fire? He fell silent himself for a moment and studied the ground in thought. Hopeful put a hand on his shoulder. Are you all right, Christian? I'm... I'm just missing Faithful. He would have shown us perhaps a better way, a, a kinder way, to engage these fellows and bring the truth to bear. In the end, it does break my heart that they are so lost, even while they believe themselves bound for the Celestial City. I fear that whole town is lost, right down to the parson of their local church, said Hopeful. In vanity, everyone spoke highly of the town of Fair Speech. It was considered sophisticated and quite clever how they would wear the outward trappings of religion when it suited them, while each man was secretly a rioter and a rake. In fact, on their city's banner is written their true motto, Do what thou wilt. That is the sum of their law. Beneath the veneer of their devotion is much drinking, wenching, and banqueting. This is celebrated in Vanity Fair, but cannot be celebrated by a true pilgrim on the narrow way. Do what thou wilt? Really? Christian's head hung low. That is written on the flags of Beelzebub's kingdom. Aye, and it flies over the chapel in Fair Speech, right next to the steeple. Just then they rounded a bend and saw a high jutting hill ahead of them and a man standing at its peak, waving for them to come up. Ho, turn aside, he shouted. To what end, asked Hopeful. I will show you something amazing. Christian frowned. What is so amazing that we would want to turn out of the way to see it? Why, it's a silver mine and a few people digging in it for treasure. With great results, if you would but come up here, with very little effort, you men can become very wealthy. I've never seen a silver mine, Hopeful said. Well, let's go have a look. That would be unwise, my friend. I have heard of this place. Many have been slain here. Others have been broken and maimed so that to their dying day they could never be their own men again. The treasure of which he speaks is a snare to those who seek it, holding them back from progress along the way. What are you fellows talking about down there? called the gentleman. Deciding how you'll spend your fortune? Is that place not dangerous? Hopeful asked. Only to careless folks. Come up and see for yourself. Christian strode up to the front of the rocky hill and said, Dimas, you are an enemy of the lord of this road and of all who walk along it. You have already been condemned for turning aside, and now you want nothing but to turn others to the same condemnation. You have me wrong, friend, he said, doffing his hat and giving a little half-bow. I am of your fraternity. If you will only join me for a moment, you will see how wrong you are. Did I call you by the right name? Christian demanded. Yes, my name is Damas, and I am a son of Abraham. I know just who you are. Judas was your father, and Gehazi your great-grandfather. You follow in their steps with your 
devilish prank, but we true pilgrims know that your father was hanged for a traitor, and by the very lips of our Lord he would have been better off had he never been born. And now we continue on our way to meet the great Lord in the city where his throne is established. Good day, sir. As they departed, they heard Damas shouting again, Ho there! Turn aside, good gentlemen! Looking back, they saw the four travelers from Fair Speech coming around the bend, calling back up to Dimas. Turn aside for what good, sir? Oh, this is not good, Hopeful whispered. I will show you something to dazzle the senses. Gentlemen, Christian shouted, I beg of you, do not listen to him. He wants only to turn you aside from the narrow way, to your own very great destruction. Oh, pish posh, said Mr. Hold the World. We've had quite enough of you two killjoys. On your way. Hopeful cupped his hands to his mouth and cried, Believe us, he will promise you riches, but take your very lives. Bayens dismissed him with a wave of his hand and began climbing Hill Lucre. The others followed. Hopeful and Christian tried several more times to call them back, but within a short time they'd climbed out of sight and the two pilgrims resumed the road ahead of them. They walked in silence for a while, then Hopeful asked, Do you think they fell into the pit? I have no idea. It's likely, I suppose. Or perhaps they will go down into the mine to dig and be smothered by the toxic fumes which fill the place. Or perhaps they will see the mine for what it is and come back down of their own accord. They traveled on with little conversation for about two hours. They had just determined to find a shady spot for a mid-afternoon meal when they came upon what at first appeared to be a strange monument, the likeness of a woman reaching out, her mouth slack and her empty eyes pained. This is rather macabre, Christian said. What is it made of? Hopeful wondered. Quartz? I don't think so, Christian said. He rubbed his finger along the woman's palm and held it to his lips. It's salt. Looking up into the hollow cavities of the woman's eyes, he felt a sense of dread welling up within him. In that moment, he felt certain that she was reaching out to him for help, only he had arrived many years too late. There's something written over here, Hopeful said from behind the monument. I, I can't read it, though. Memores estote uxor... Christian broke himself away from the woman's gaze and read the brass plate affixed to a small stone pillar. Uxoris lot. It means, remember Lot's wife. This can't truly be her, can it? I believe it is. Christian could now see that she was not reaching out for deliverance, but rather reaching back toward the city of destruction, longing for what was behind her rather than the salvation that lie ahead. This is quite timely, he said. Her covetous heart drew her back even while she fled to safety, and now she has become a spectacle for all who pass by, just as we would have been had we gone over the edge of Hill Lucre. Christian, I am so sorry that I wanted to go and, and have a look. By all rights, I should be just as this woman before us. I cannot see the difference between her sin and mine. He rubbed his temples. Actually, I, I can. She only glanced back. I had a desire to, to climb up and take in the whole view. Oh, I'm, 
I'm ashamed that such a thought ever entered my heart. Every pilgrim's heart entertains such thoughts, hopeful. Do not despair. Instead, let's take notice of what we see here, for surely the king of this country has placed her here for a reason. This woman escaped one judgment, destruction in Sodom, yet she was destroyed by another. Yeah, Hopeful agreed, may she be both caution and example for us. That we should shun sin, lest such a judgment overtake us as well, and I see something else. Her eyes and her hands are pointed backward toward the cities destined for destruction, no doubt, but more immediately toward the silver mine that lay just down beyond that valley. I see the top of Hill Lucre from here. Which means that Dimas and everyone who stands at its peak cannot help but see this woman standing here as a terrible warning against turning aside or even looking back. It confounds the mind, Christian said. But desperate people do foolish and desperate things. Like the man who picks pockets in the presence of the judge or snatches purses beneath the gallows. Consider that the land of Sodom was second only to Eden in its lushness and, and natural beauty, and yet their lives were filled with every wickedness and abomination before the Lord. This kindled his jealousy all the more so that their plague was as hot as the fire of heaven could make it. Hopeful fell to his knees and said, Thank you, thank you, Lord, for your mercy, that neither Christian nor I was made such an example, especially me. A pilgrim so recently mired in sin and filth, we thank you and fear you and pray that we always remember Lot's wife. Amen, Christian said. They continued on their way, not willing to share a meal at the foot of this eerie monument or in the shadow of Hill Lucre, and soon they found the narrow way following along a pleasant river. They passed a young woman fishing on the bank of the river, a shield upon her back and a sword at her hip. Pardon me, miss, Hopeful said. Do you know the name of this river? She looked up with a smile and told him, It has more than one name. The great King David called it the River of God, but John the Apostle referred to it as the River of the Water of Life. In either case, its water is cold and crisp and satisfies the thirsty who drink of it, enlivening their weary spirits. Enjoy it as you make progress along the way. And don't miss the green trees growing on its banks. They produce nine kinds of fruits, all of which are sweet to the mouths of pilgrims and agreeable to their stomachs. And even the leaves are edible and protect against many of the diseases that tend to afflict travelers. You know an awful lot about this place, Hopeful observed. She flashed another smile and turned back to her fishing. Thank you, Christian said. Christ be with you both, the young woman answered. The road followed the river around a lazy bend, and soon the pilgrims found themselves in the midst of a sprawling meadow, carpeted with lilies, spreading out as far as they could see on either side of the river. Here, they sat down and ate their dinner, followed by a piece of fruit from the green tree and long pulls of sweet, cold water, which quenched their thirst like nothing ever had. Then they lay down, knowing they were safe here. When they awoke, they gathered more fruit from the trees, with which to break fast, and drank more of the water from the river. Then they lay down again and rested in the meadow. This they did for three days and nights. Then, on the fourth day, strengthened and rested, they determined to depart, for they were not yet at their journey's end.
Thanks for listening. To support this program and for additional content and perks, visit patreon.com slash pilgrimsprogress and or take two minutes to leave an honest review wherever you get your podcasts. The Pilgrim's Progress, From This World to That Which Is to Come, adapted by Zachary Bartles from John Bunyan's classic manuscript. This text, copyright 2022, Zachary Bartles. This recording, copyright 2022, high and silver, all rights reserved. Produced by Brad Atchison and Zachary Bartles. Other sound effects and music licensed from Pond5 and Audio Micro. For more and Engaging audio fiction, visit www.zacharybartles.com slash audio. Hi, and silver. Good. Check.